It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the Career Profiles podcast. I am your host, Sean, joined, as always, by Johnston for another episode of the life and the career of another prominent figure in the sport of boxing. Now, this prominent figure is actually the first promoter we have covered for the Career Profiles podcast, someone who we have talked about on Jack Johnson's career profile. We've talked about him in legendary nights he's come up on a few occasions this is probably the original greatest promoter now many people will argue who the greatest promoter may be in this day and age but tex rickard is originally labeled the greatest promoter that boxing has ever seen by the ring magazine's nat fleischer and this episode is going to tell you all about his life not just about what he did in the sport of boxing as a promoter but as a manager and as a human being and how he came into this sport and how he helped fighters make lots of money for difficult periods of time this is one that i think will fascinate everybody johnston one that we've been interested in for quite some time and one that we said one day we will do something on him in its entirety because he's a fascinating character and it's only right that we bring this to the career profiles podcast and do a a real in-depth story on Tex Rickard. He deserves it, I'll be honest with you. There's one little hiccup along this story that I'm not too best keen on, but other than that, he's almost like the bo- boxing's Forrest Gump. The amount of people he meets along the way, the amount of friends he has, the amount he does in his pretty short life is absolutely amazing. I mean, his life in itself should be a movie. It really should be you can understand why it will be a two-part because the fact is, is there's so many tales to tell you about Tex Rickard. So yeah, we hope you enjoy it. The, the timeline is brilliant. You know, that those cowboy days as the cowboys were going away and he was one of those guys. Yeah, fascinating story. A two-parter and please make sure you tune in for the second part of the Tex Rickard story, which he gets released the following week from this release. Now we are going to begin this story with a little bit of discrepancy 
on where George Lewis, a.k.a. Tex Rickard, was born. Some historians believe he was born in Kansas, while others say Missouri. Now, in the biography, The Magnificent Rube, written about Tex Rickard in 1957, the author, Charles Samuels, tells an interesting story about Tex's birth, which he claimed to be in 1871 in Missouri. Samuel says that Rickard was born during a hail of gunfire from a posse that was chasing Frank and Jesse James. The outlaws were visiting their mother, Sorelda Samuel, who lived on the farm next door, and he explained to be Rickard's farm. The young Rickard family was so horrified by the violent acts surrounding them that they were forced to move to Texas. It is an interesting and fascinating story, but one that is unlikely to be true. Unfortunately, his birth record is absent, and neither county had records prior to 1890. His certificate of marriage to Maxine Hodges, dated October 7th, 1926 in West Virginia, mentions Wyandotte as the county where he was born, although he called it Wyandotte, Missouri, even though Wyandotte County is in Kansas, and it was also where his parents, Robert Rickard, and Lucretia Jane Ferguson were married. What we do know is that Tex was born on January the 2nd, 1870, and not 1871, as mentioned in the 1870 census records of Wyandotte County. In 1874, the Rickard family that included three young children moved from Quintaro Township in Wyandotte County to the small town of Cambridge, Texas, also known as Pinhook. One of Tex Rickard's wives described his father as a person who tried hard, but he was one of those individuals with a peculiar genius for not making money. Robert was a millwright by trade, also known as an industrial mechanic, which is someone who installs, maintains, repairs and troubleshoots stationary, industrial machinery and mechanical equipment in sites such as factories, production plants and recreational facilities. But before he became a millwright, he actually joined the Union forces. So that's the blue side or the northern side, however you want to refer to it. He was a member of the Illinois 41st Infantry in the American Civil War. Now in the book, Tex Rickard, Boxing's Greatest Promoter, by Colleen Aycock and Mark Scott, they explained that Robert was already under command before the first Battle of Bull Run during the Civil War. Now, by September of 1861, Rickard was assigned to the following battles. The Battles of Shiloh, the Siege of Corinth, Mississippi, and the Battle of Vicksburg. Now, while on duty, Robert actually wrote to his uncle in Springfield. This is the only quote we got from Tex Rickard's dad. So in this letter, he said, Many of our brave boys fell on this bloody field. We were outnumbered by a large force of Brackinger's men and then behind earthworks. We made the charge with 250 men in our regiment and we came out with 80 unhurt. I was lucky to come off the field with only a slight scratch of a shell. At the Battle of Pittsburgh, Shiloh, at Fort Donaldson, I thought the balls flew faster than they ever could again. But at Jackson, they sung Dixie around my ears. The grape 
and canister mowed our ranks down like grass before the site. Our old flag was riddled with balls. Three different flag bearers were killed in our regiment and the fourth one carried the flag off the field. Our Major Long from Taylorsville, Illinois was killed by a grape. He was a noble man and loved by the regiment. I seen General Grant this morning riding over the hills of Vicksburg. He is the old hero of the West and will make the South surrender unconditionally. Great description of uh, what it was like fighting in that war and Rickard survived all four years of the brutal war to march triumphantly in the Grand Review in Washington, D.C. on May 24, 1865. After the Civil War, Robert Rickard met Lucretia Jane Ferguson. As with most men, after any sort of war and lack of support to integrate into normal society, Robert found alcohol as a way of dealing with his demons. He also apparently contracted some form of lung disease during his service in the Civil War. There were various forms of lung disease at the time, ranging from tuberculosis, also called the black lung, and it was this lung virus that caused him to move to Texas, where he believed the climate would improve his condition. Nevertheless, it was too late for Robert, who passed away on March 22, 1881, when Tex was 11 years old. Even though Tex lost his father at such a young age, he still had fond memories, like when he hunted buffalo with his father. Most of the large herds of American buffalo had already been killed by soldiers and white traders when he was a kid, but buffalo did still roam on hunting grounds northwest of Whittisha Falls. Tex Rickard's mother, Lou, buried her husband in the Cambridge Cemetery and then moved the family to a small farm a few miles south to a community known as Blue Grove. Together with his two brothers, Bob Jr. and Merle, and three sisters, Minnie, Annie Catherine and Alice, Rickard was already becoming a natural promoter. He declared that his first promotion was the Blue Grove Picnic. To bring in some much-needed money for the family, he polished the boots for local cowboys for a few bucks, but his main source of income was when he hired himself as a range hand herding cows until he was 22. Two of his close friends mentioned the ranches where he worked. One said he was employed by the Harold Brothers for the East Ranch near Archer City. The other source specified that he worked for the Curtis Brothers and later for the W.H. Worsham's R2 Ranch in Hardham and County. So Tex Rickard uh, wasn't actually called Tech then. He was actually also known as Dink, a name that stayed with him until he left Texas, took part in several major cattle drives involving as many as 3,000 livestock. Rickard's first drive when he was 16 from Henricha, Texas to Honeywell, Kansas. And then when he worked for the R2 ranch, he actually drove a herd to Dodge City, Kansas. So long distances. But later he joined a group of 11 men who took a herd of 3,000 longhorns to Montana. These drives were tough to say the least. They meant 18 hour shifts that could take up to one to three months depending on the severity of the weather. But he could earn up to $100 for completing a drive. At 19, he started his last cattle drive a three-month trip to Omaha, Nebraska. The men he met and worked with on the ranches in his early days became his lifelong friends. 
they were always his guests at boxing promotions, and when he died, several of them made the trip to New York to attend his funeral. It's no wonder they would become close, because it wasn't just maintaining the cattle numbers that they had to worry about. It was the bandits and the wild animals that they would have to fight off while on the trail. Once they navigated a long mile line of cattle through Red River and into the Indian Territory, they then needed their negotiation skills to be on point because the native people had learned to beg or steal cattle from the cowboys when they crossed their land. This is probably where Tex learned how to barter by handing over some of the animals just to keep the peace. Now, regardless of how well prepared they were, there were always something, always something happening and sometimes they just couldn't prepare themselves for like when he had to ride with two cowboys that actually hated each other's guts. Their rift began when they both fell in love with the same girl who actually ended up marrying someone else. Tex recalled, You'd think that those two fellas would have made up and consoled each other after that, but they didn't. They seemed to hate each other more. Two days into their drive, and the two men began to argue. The one called Tripper got sick of the argument and shot his nemesis Kirby in the stomach before riding away. The foreman, Matt, and the rest of the team left the wounded Kirby with Tex while they made their dash on the horseback to locate a doctor 30 miles away. What happened during the night was described in the book, Tex Rickard, Boxing's Greatest Promoter, and it reads, Rickard heard the howls of the hungry wolves and the yelps of coyotes as they drew closer. Kirby struggled for his last breath as Dink lay beside him. It wasn't long before a lone wolf came sniffing around at the corpse. Rickard drilled the animal with his Winchester. The evening seemed eternally long as he lay between a dead wolf and a dead man. Rickard said years later, I'll never forget that night if I'll live to be a hundred years old. Every time I'd see a pair of eyes gleaming through the darkness, I'd take a shot at them. In the morning, we found the carcasses of the four coyotes and three wolves lying on the prairie. The next morning, the men buried Kirby in a shallow grave under a tree, which prompted Foreman Matt to pray, may God have mercy on poor Kirby's soul and keep the wolves and coyotes from digging him up. Now this was the same man that told Tex, don't sulk, bite down on it, during an Indian attack, gunfight or some other hungry animal when he bothered them during the nights. In 1894, at the age of 24, Ricard was elected City Marshal of Henrietta, Texas, the youngest sheriff of the town, known unofficially as Lick Skillet. His earnings were based solely on what he would collect in fines from drunks around town. Ricard's typical method of cleaning up the town whenever there was an outburst of disorderly conduct among the locals was to say in a very calm voice, now just go home, be good, or go home, go to bed. However, during confrontations, Rickard had the confidence, quick thinking, quick draw of his gun, and strong hands that served him well. Carried a gun all throughout his whole life, by the way. The young sheriff fell in love with the daughter of a physician, Dr. Samuel Ginn Bittick. But when the couple announced their intentions to marry, the doctor prohibited the marriage of his 19-year-old daughter, Leona Viola, to Ricard because he felt she was in poor health. 
but this did not stop the two from getting married on July the 2nd, 1894. The story that became legend in town was published in the Wichita paper after Rickard passed away. That version read, one week after Ms. Bittick's graduation from the Polytechnic College in Fort Worth and dressed in the same gown she wore for her May 1894 graduation, the couple escaped and were married in Fort Worth. But one month later, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mrs. Rickard was confined to her bed, suffering from what was then considered the White Plague, incurable tuberculosis. Six months later, on February the 3rd, 1895, they had a son named Curtis L. Rickard. Tragically, on March 11, 1895, Leona died from her illness after recently turning just 20 years old. On May 4, two months later, Rickard's son, Curtis, also died. Both were buried in Henrietta's Hope Cemetery. By the summer, a heartbroken Tex Rickard and his new friend, Will Slack, boarded a train to anywhere. That was the quote, a train to anywhere. And they arrived at the last stop, Seattle, Washington. From there, they heard tales of fortunes in gold being mined in the great White North, which whetted their appetite. By wintertime, Rickard and Slack boarded a boat to Janelle, Alaska, then assembled their backpacks, sleighs, and a year's worth of food and supplies at a cost of about $1,000 per person. They crossed paths with many men who had returned with tales of misery and empty hands. This did not deter Rickard, as he and Slack continued on with their journey to Klondike, which means a rich source of something in Alaska although the Klondike River is in Canada's Yukon Territory. A Klondike historian, Pierre Burton, noted that more than 100,000 souls would attempt the trip in 1897, but only about 30,000 of them would make it. Tex and Will were among the early arrivals in the Klondike two years before the stampede of July 1897 that went on until 1898. At the time, Rickard made the trek to the gold fields. No railroad existed and there were only two paths into the territory. The longer route from the town of Skagway was the 43-mile White Pass Trail, which had a lower elevation but was considered too bleak and desolate to cross. The shorter route via the Chilkoot Pass from Dyer runs 32 miles but imposes an extreme incline. The authors, Colleen Aycock and Mark Scott, explained the excruciating route when they wrote, 
When Rickard and Slack started their trek, they had to make the arduous climb to the Chilkoot Pass, which meant traversing 16 miles of trail over a 3,535-foot mountain summit, 33 miles from Dea to Lake Bennett. The final climb of the mountain summit required scaling 800 feet at a grade of 45 degrees. The entire trip had to be broken into segments that allowed the men to carry 50 to 100 pounds of provisions on their backs, make a drop, and then return to pick up the next load of provisions, thus traversing the trail 20 or 30 times. Wow, absolutely insane. The Klondike documentary, can have a look at it, guys. It is unreal. Seriously, these men, impressive, like superhuman. So this was because, so they had to keep dropping off the prohibitions and then going back. This was because of the Northwest Police, and they enforced a new law that every traveller must register their supplies. Those who attempted to travel light were actually denied access. The ordeal actually took its toll on Rickard's friend. Slack, who had successfully negotiated the Chilhook Summit on numerous occasions, but it wasn't just the multiple journeys to pick up these provisions that took its toll on these men who attempted the trail. So on the other side where many thought it looked like another country. So you can see there's snow embankment and they're climbing up it and they get to the summit and then it literally looks like somewhere completely different. And this was where the two trails met Lake Burnett. Now, after completing that audacious climb, they then had to complete a further 500-mile voyage down the Yukon River to Dawson City in the goldfields. However, it wasn't as simple as just waiting for a boat back then to take you to your destination. You had to build a boat yourself and then travel through the rapids for an, in an unforgiving river. I mean, loads of people died just going down this river because their boats were so poor. It was at this point when Slack obviously arrived at the boat building stage that he became delirious and sold his provisions to other hopefuls that were also camped at the lake's edge waiting for the ice to melt and spring to blossom. Slack must have been distraught when he realised that their adventure still had more to go. He turned his back and he left Ricard on his own. So he needed to build a boat and navigate down a dangerous river on his own, which he probably had friends. I mean, we don't know who, but I'm sure he got some other people involved. Well, it must have made him rethink. He described it as the coldest and most difficult task in his entire life. I bet it was. Ricard made his journey down the Yukon River. He actually survived it for a start before the Northwest Mounted Police, so the NWMP, introduced safety rules because so many boats were wrecked and several hundred people died. The river could be so dangerous that the police would actually vet the boats carefully and forbid women and children to travel through the rapids because they were so bad. Uh, Ricard survived the pass and made it to one of the outposts in absolute freezing conditions. The journey that Ricard had endured must have taken strength, mentally and physically, as well as endurance and confidence that would put him in good stead during his later life. He would have lived in a tent like many others because there were not enough houses built to accommodate the influx of people, even before the beginning of the stampede. Even after the difficult journey was complete, the next part was to start mining for gold. Many slaved away with a pickaxe and shovel during the summer, and endure winter months of depressing darkness in solitary confinement. 
To say this was torturous would be an understatement. The ground was pretty much frozen most of the year, so miners used fire to soften the ground before digging unsafe mines. As time passed, many settlers arrived, and with that, saloons, dance halls, and prostitutes soon followed. It was among the friends that Rickard made that his nickname was created, Tex. Author Pierre Burton described the Alaskan code among the various camps, forts, and townships. Forty Mile City had no mayor, council, no judges or lawyers, no police or jail or written code. If a man had no money, he could still get an outfit without payment. Men shared their good fortune with their comrades. Each man's cabin was open to any passerby, such as a traveller, could enter, eat what he wanted, sleep in the absent owner's bed, and then go on his way as long as he cleaned up and left a supply of fresh firewood. This was more than mere courtesy in a land where a freezing man's life might depend on the speed with which he could light a fire. As explained in the book again, Tex Rickard, boxing's greatest promoter, 145 miles northwest of 40 Mile was Circle City, which was Rickard's first destination. Yeah, of course, Rickard had gone through that show. He ain't going to be a minor. And it was a city built on sandbars of the river's bend uh, or its circle, which turned to mud banks with uh, a hovering swarm of pesky mos- mosquitoes in the spring. So it was a mucky and sticky, horrible way to buy the sound of things. And by 1896, the city had a population of 1,200, which had an impressive opera house, two theatres, eight dance halls and 28 saloons. It was at one of these saloons called Sam Boonfield's Bank Saloon, the gambling house, was where Rickard got a job dealing cards. Square Sam was his name because he ran an honest gambling house and Silent Sam, because he was quiet and reserved, was a renowned gambler and the owner of this saloon. He had the largest saloon in town, and he would later provide Ricard with a gambling shack of his own, which he would eventually lose in a card game. When news circulated in Circle City of a gold strike-up river, Ricard was one of the first to leave, and first strike it rich in Klondike. Rickard partnered up with 26-year-old Harry Ash and together they took 20 days to pull a sled up the frozen river towards Dawson City to the Bonanza Creek where the gold strike was announced. After arriving at the famous creek, the two bought a half interest in the free below Bonanza. Now shortly after buying it, they actually sold it for $20,000 and then bought an interest in for Bello, which they then sold for $30,000. Because much of the land had already been stacked, many prospectors had to buy into claims or lease them from existing owners. It was through the buying and leasing of claims that many prospectors made money without doing a day's work of hard rock mining or hard graft, basically. They didn't have to get their hands dirty. Clever ones. Now, the claims Rickard bought and sold at Bonanza Creek were his first big strikes and made him money off the gold diggers rather than dig for the gold himself. With the money they had acquired in Dawson, Tex and Harry Ash 
purchased a bar and gambling parlour and named the place appropriately, the Northern. It existed alongside a dozen other saloons, but Tex was the one known to be square, fair and generous, like his mentor Sam Bonifield. Plus, credit was unlimited. If miners didn't have enough gold dust to pay their debts at the store or the saloon, they were still allowed money for their spree. It was agreed that after a hard winter, every man deserved a spree, comprising of a few drinks, some gambling chips, and a few local females. Debts were agreed with a simple handshake, but logged in the business books and made the Northern the most famous bar. However, on a single hand of poker, Ash and Rickard lost the saloon, and without breathing a word of his loss, Rickard walked out and went to work dealing cards at another called the Monte Carlo. While in the saloon dealing, Rickard met working girl Blanche Lamont, who was one of the more famous women at Dawson. Many of the most wealthy people asked for her hand in marriage, but she considered herself Texas girl. The relationship didn't last after an actress called Marie arrived in town and turned Rickard's head, but she would move on and they would meet again. One night while working at the Monte Carlo, Australian heavyweight boxer Frank Slavin and the local tough man Bill Hoffman got into a barroom brawl. This was the same fighter that fought the great black Australian heavyweight Peter Jackson at the National Sporting Club at Covent Garden in London in 1892. Rickard and work colleague Wilson Misner broke up the scuff and then decided to arrange for them to fight in the backroom theatre at the saloon for $15 a ticket. If Wilson Misner was a name you recalled, then that's the same man who would go on to manage the great middleweight Stanley Ketchell. And uh, please check out our Dark Side of Boxing episode on the greatest middleweight of all time, or one of the greatest middleweights of all time, Mr. Stanley Ketchell. But back to the story, and all tickets were sold, but the fight was one-sided, and Slavin knocked out Hoffman in the first round. Happy with the entertainment and the demand, Misner arranged for a fight between Slavin and wrestler Frank Gotch. The poor referee were totally confused which rules to use boxing or wrestling, so when Gotch threw Slavin out of the ring, he declared the match a draw. Misner and Rickard, now with the bug of boxing in their bellies, matched Slavin against his Canadian sparring partner, Joe Boyle. Misner and Rickard advised the boxers to act like enemies and sent them to various saloons to make personal appearances and just to trash talk against each other. Well, the plan worked. It brought good publicity and built up the fight enough so that the tickets could be sold for 10 more dollars, now $25 a pop. How the fight ended, we don't know, but it made good money for the saloon and would have no doubt given Rickard food for thought for the future. In August of 1899, Rickard moved on to Rawhide and built a small saloon. He, ad- he advertised a grand opening that future novelist Rex Beach said included a boxing match and a ball and that all miners attended. Due to the saloon being too small to hold a standard boxing ring, the men formed a circle and the two men went to battle. The grand opening was a success. But Rickard's business soon went broke. He moved on to St. Michael in the spring with $21 in his pocket. With that money, he bought a barrel of whiskey and opened a tent salon. In 1900, Rickard moved to Nome 
a city in Alaska, where to his surprise, he bumped into the same old flame he met back in Dawson, the singer Marie, who was working at the Northern Saloon, which was owned by JB, Jim Murphy. It didn't take long for the couple to reunite. Ricard married Marie Batu in the saloon, thanks to Murphy, who advanced Tech some gold dust to pay for the wedding and was even the best man at the ceremony. The newlyweds rented a room at the Eldorado Saloon and Ricard went to work, eventually investing in the Northern and hiring his brother, Merle, as a bartender. Ricard operated as both a businessman and a professional gambler, while Marie spent most of her time at the Standard, a saloon known for its theatrical shows. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com One evening after Rickard left the Northern, he went to the Standard and found his wife in the arms of another man, a fellow actor. She explained remorsefully, We were practicing a love scene. Instead of pulling out his gun and murdering the man, something that would have been accepted in these days, he dragged her back to their rented accommodation. The following morning, Tex discovered that Marie had gone, leaving him a letter that read, I have gone away with him. Don't try to follow us. I will not come back. You have been very good to me, but I want a career and he can give it to me. Rickard was devastated, but of course carried on with his businesses, managing the Northern with his part investment. Due to the saloon's remoteness, miners would even leave their gold with Rickard for safekeeping, and if any hopeful bandit thought of robbing the place, well, they would be mistaken. Yeah, one squab actually explained that the country was infested with bad men. Yet Tex never had any fuss in his place. He let it be known that no shooting would be allowed and that bad men would be all the more welcome for their absence. This was taken as a bluff. It was not a bluff. Some of them tried to make a rough house in this place. They went in with the avowed intention of killing him. Yet he never killed a man, in spite of the fact that he would have been quite justified in doing so, morally and legally as well. Somehow these bad men found that it would be much better to be bad somewhere else. Because he just had some... Everybody liked him, so everyone would look after the, the bar, because it was a good place to be. So to curb the lawlessness of the land, a wealthier or the wealthier businessmen selected a council. They actually initially wanted Tex Rickard for mayor because he was one of the most trusted in the community, but he refused, and a merchant, Julius Gies, was given the job. Nevertheless, author Lael Morgan mentioned that Gies's education was so poor 
the new mayor let the, uh, this is his quote, the well-spoken saloon man, Rickard, call all the shots. So therefore, the new city council was actually directed by Tex Rickard, who agreed, along with the rest of the contingency, to add a license fee for liquor sales costing $1,000. This was $2,000 less than what Rickard had to pay previously for protection money to keep his bar safe and open. During this time, a 16-year-old called John Philip McKernan, a.k.a. Jack Doc Kearns, the future manager of the heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey, he began working at Rickard's Northern Saloon. He had followed the same adventurous route to the Klondike, but found himself working for Tex. Kearns was as crafty as ever, explained in his autobiography how he would pinch some of the gold stuff from the famous saloon. He revealed that he would pour syrup onto his hands and rub his hands through his hair to ensure that gold dust would stick. Then, when he managed to gather some of the miners' dust on his hands, he would quickly swipe his hands through his hair. After work, he would shake it out and find that he'd earned himself a nice little extra bit on the side. But nothing compared to Rickard, who cashed out his partnership interest in the Northern Hotel and Saloon after four years and was given at an astonishing $400,000. Not content with his small fortune, he actually bet all the money at poker on a double or nothing game. Unlike before where he lost it all, this time he walked out with $800,000, the equivalent of about $28 to $29 million today. Incredibly, within three years, it was gone. Now it all started when the shady Jim Whitney told Ricard in a bar one night about diamonds in Africa. The two became partners and sailed off to another continent on the Patricia. Once they arrived, Ricard discovered that he was a part owner of a mine that didn't even exist. The trip took him to London and eventually back to San Francisco, California in 1903, where along the way he must have gambled away the money he had left. How much the mine cost and how much he lost on gambling has never been uncovered, but we wouldn't be surprised if he tried to double or quit on one hand of poker like he had done on two other occasions and lost it. And even if Lady Luck had given him a kick up the arse, Cupid was back firing those love arrows as he met another lady called Edith Haig. She was the daughter of an actress he had met in Alaska. They married and had a daughter named Bessie. Rickard was back to chasing another fortune when he heard about big gold strikes in the southwest of America. He was also informed that his friend, Wyatt Earp, the American lawman and gambler famous for the gunfight at the OK Corral, had actually opened a saloon in Nevada. So Rickard planned to buy a ranch like the one he had grown up on, but ended up convincing his new wife to take their young daughter to a small mining camp 30 miles south of Tanapay. Rickard and his young family put down roots and lived a decent life after establishing an even bigger saloon than his first. The Nevada version of the Great Northern Saloon was brought with a, another partner called uh, E.S. Kid Hiley and it flourished. In 1905, the mines around Goldfield produced $2.3 million and Rickard took his fair share by wetting the appetites of the miners, entertaining them, with his gambling hall 
it at the corner of Crook and Main Streets in Goldfield. At its peak, Goldfield had 53 saloons, but the Northern was always the most popular. It boasted 14 gambling tables and a six-foot mahogany bar managed 24 hours a day by three shift workers. Wyatt Earp even worked there for a time overseeing the gambling tables that played roulette, faro, blackjack and craps with 24 dealers. It was said, and we quote, that all the patrons got all the excitement they craved, frequently laying $10,000 on the turn of a card. Rickard also served as Goldfield's unofficial banker. He held miners' money for safekeeping in a back room of the Northern and he made loans to those he believed had a good chance of striking gold. He was part owner of the Eli Nevada Copper Company and a director of the White Pine County Bank. He's certainly got many fingers and many pies at this point. Of he his really life. has, isn't he? And his success was further reinforced when he built the first brick Victorian home in Goldfield. It was the only home with grass that had to be kept alive with daily watering. And that was sold by the bucket. But then, on April the 18th, 1906, one of the deadliest earthquakes in the history of America rocked San Francisco, causing a breakout of fires which lasted for several days. More than 3,000 people died. 250,000 people lost their homes and over 80% of the city was destroyed, forcing the San Francisco Stock Exchange to close for more than two months. According to one memoir, every bank in Nevada closed down, just as every California bank did. Nevada banks, as a rule, had cleared through San Francisco banks and practically all of Nevada's cash was tied up by the catastrophe. A few weeks after the disaster, Rickard went to New York for business, and while in Brooklyn, he took in his first professional fight on May the 28th between two of the top lightweights, Terry McGovern and Jimmy Britt. Although the real champ in this era was, of course, Joe Gans. Please do go and check out the career profile of Joe Gans. Now, in July 1906, Rickard belonged to a group of Goldfield businessmen. These men were mine owners, stockbrokers, saloon owners and lawyers. They were meeting to discuss ways of publicising the town to attract investors from around the country to its mining stocks. They realised that they needed to bring eastern money to the Nevada mining town or they'd end up going bust, but it had to be something big enough to attract publicity and money. The sharp mind of Rickard remembered the great excitement of the prize fight in New York and realised that money could be made on a boxing match as long as the fight had enough significance. Well, he managed to convince the leaders of the town that there was nothing Western miners liked more than a good old scrap, whether that be a gunfight or a fist fight. Rickard argued, The problem with you fellows is you can't see the nose on your face, whether it's a couple of snakes or roosters. The thing you really crave is a good fight. He noted that all these years after James J. Corbett had beaten John L. Sullivan for the heavyweight title in 1892, people still today at that point talked about it. His colleagues agreed that boxing had its appeal and could attract attention to Goldfield. And on the spot, they put him in charge of arranging a prize fight. 
They knew that Ricard had little experience in boxing, but they also knew that he looked the part with his impeccable attire. He was always dressed well. He was often very, very polite, and he made a good impression with his low-key manner. And a good impression on wealthy men or poor men. It made no difference. He made an impression on His idea was to pair the fever of the gold rush with the excitement of a big fight and bring thousands in their droves to Goldfield. Rickard Wide co-manager Joe Humphreys of former featherweight champion Terry McGovern, he said, can we make you an offer of $15,000 for a fight to the finish, Terry McGovern and Jimmy Britt, to take place in Goldfield, Nevada? Now, Humphreys had never heard of Rickard or Goldfield for that matter and thought the telegram was a hoax and immediately returned a wire declining the proposal and any threat in a bin. There had been plenty of talk among the miners at the back end of 1905 and at the beginning of 1906 of a fight between Joe Gans, the real lightweight champion, and battling Nelson, who was the recognised champion. His friends suggested, as Texas friends suggested, or this fight would be memorable due to the controversy surrounding that lightweight title, plus the clash of styles with Gans being the artist and Nelson being that wild man, wild kid fighter. Tex put out an advertisement in a newspaper and the ad was seeking fighters for a match in Nevada. Without discussing the matter with his manager, Battling Nelson, who saw the advert, personally answered and accepted the challenge in a telegram to the Goldfield newspaper. Tex Rickard replied to the Dane in less than an hour. According to Nelson, Rickard replied, Your proposition of $5,000 guarantee and $5,000 side bet accepted. But... The original opponent, Jack Clifford, was now off the table, and instead he wired back, but would prefer a meeting between yourself and Gans. We would give $15,000 for the same. Rickard was asked to raise the bid to $30,000 for the Gans match, and accepted. Billy Nolan, Nelson's manager, then got involved, and he wired Rickard and said, $30,000 for a finished fight between Nelson and Gans, Post cash would consider Clifford for 20 rounds for much less figure. Now, within minutes of receiving Nolan's offer to match Battling Nelson for $30,000, Tex responded by agreeing to the purse, which was by far the largest guaranteed purse ever. Rickard would later say that he knew he was going to have trouble getting Nelson into the ring with Gans, and he realised it was going to take a huge amount of money to bring him to Goldfield to face Gans. But he was so determined to seal the deal to put Goldfield on the map that he said he would have funded the entire purse out of his own pockets. However, other businessmen, like Larry Sullivan, a stock seller, wanted to get involved in the venture, knowing it was worth the investment. Rickard had heard that Gans was in San Francisco and requested assistance from W.W. Norton, sports editor of The Examiner. Norton was able to locate Gans and relay the offer, because Gans was struggling at this point to find opponents. He was in his in his uh, career profile with Sani. It's all just he could get a fight for love nor money. Uh, so when he got the offer, he was quick to jump at the offer. Clearly, uh, not wanting to risk losing the deal on conditions, he actually wired Rickard that he would agree to take the fight on any terms Nelson demanded. He actually wrote anything that suits Nelson will suit me. Rickard travelled to Reno to complete the deal and work his charm. And on August the 8th, 1906, Rickard wired Goldfield that the Gans-Nelson fight 
was definitely on. However, there would be plenty more negotiating to do. While in Reno, Ricard purchased a load of wood for a 20,000 seat stadium that would be built and sold most of the expensive tickets to his wealthy friends and patrons while he was there too. So the higher rollers bought 10, 20, even 50 top dollar seats. The Police Gazette announced news of the fight and proclaimed the whole civilised world has discovered that Goldfield is on the map and Tex Rickard was labelled the new fight king. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. The previously unknown Ricard was pictured holding a bag of 30,000 gold coins for a fight that was financed by the sellers of gold mining stock. He used that money to exchange it into $20 gold pieces that he placed in the window of the local bank. The picture of gold coins equaling $30,000 and neatly stacked in the bank's window made its way to every major newspaper across the country. It was Ricard's first major act of what they called the Ballyhoo, which was another name for an extravagant publicity stunt, and he was full of them. On August 9th, Ricard, Gans and Nolan sat down to thrash out the Articles of Agreement. A newspaper cartoonist, Art Buell, actually drew what was called uh, sketches of the battlefield. So this is the negotiations. We actually summed up the contract negotiations quite perfectly. He drew Gans as a gentleman and Nolan as a highwayman, holding up Rickard and Gans with a pistol in one hand and enlisted demands in the other. The illustration had the caption, 75% win or lose with $5,000 bonus and Gans to weigh every 15 minutes. It was a long day of negotiating because Nolan, dug his heels in and demanded $22,500 and he just wouldn't budge. He then suggested that if he did not receive $22,500 for Nelson's share that they could find another opponent for Gans. Frustrated with Nolan's stubbornness, one of the wealthy businessmen, Larry Sullivan, offered a 50-50 split of the purse, each man to receive $15,000, win or lose, and he would personally throw $5,000 cash to Nelson. Nolan, again, refused the offer. The negotiations stalled again until 10pm. Then Rickard worked his charm and took Nolan around the shoulders and walked outside with him. He told Nolan that the fight publicity would be extraordinary. His man would surely win and even bigger money waited in future fights. 
There must have also been extra funds agreed. But when the two came back into the meeting room, an hour later, both had smiles on their faces. An agreement had been reached. Rickard had made his first deal under the table to ensure the fight would go ahead. On top of the money, the 22500 of what grew to ended up being 33500 purse, Rickard agreed to every outrageous demand that Nolan made. The most unreasonable was Nolan's stipulation about the weigh-in, which was written into the agreement signed by the fighters on August 12th. While ordinarily a fighter weighs in only once, Gans would have to weigh in at noon, 1.30 and 3 o'clock, only minutes before fight time, to ensure that he made the £133 limit, which was what was lightweight limit at the time. Nelson would weigh in three times too, but he never had trouble making weight, not like Gans. No one would really ever know exactly what offer Rickard made to satisfy Nolan. The press were informed that Nelson would get $20,000 and Gans $10,000. Yeah, I think he definitely sorted him out. Extra bit of money there, Nolan. He lived and learned and the details of the arrangements remained a mystery to this day, but the whole saga was a learning curve for the new boxing promoter that would see him in good stead in the future. And Rickard then hired a crafty partner in George Graham Rice to help with the publicity campaign, a twice convicted fraudster from the East Coast who would become more notorious as the Jackal of Wall Street. Well, Rickard knew that the gambling instinct in men had to be encouraged with a lot of publicity and Rice was just the man who could provide that. Rice published the programme for the fight which included advertisements for mining stock and immediately Rickard was able to recover his own expenses and generate funds of more than $50,000 in less than an hour. He simply walked up and down the streets of Goldfield and asked his wealthy business friends and partners if they wanted to buy $5 shares in the new Goldfield Athletic Club. More significantly, Rickard had the support of George Wingfield, well on his way to becoming the most powerful man in Nevada in 1906. Rickard became the first to invite women to watch the fight. One newspaper actually wrote, that all the traditions of the sacredness of the ringside for males will only be broken on Labour Day when the majority of the women in the camp will be in the area to watch the fight. Rickard made his reasons public as well. And he said, Already a large number of reservations have been made by women singularly and by many of them prominent men of the camp for their wives. It is estimated that 250 to 300 women will witness the contest. The club is making special preparations to properly care for all the women who attend. The arena will be filled by specially sworn-in officers who will see that nothing offensive is said or done. It continued and said, No one under the influence of liquor will be allowed within the gates and the officers will be instructed to eject any man who in any way transgresses the rules laid down by the club for the protection and comfort of the women. The newspaper noted, the unique way of conducting the fight will add greatly to the novelty of the championship contest in the heart of the desert. The stadium was built on an old baseball field on the edge of town, 
which was transformed into a magnificent open-air stadium in just a matter of weeks. Rickard made sure that the railroad tracks were laid down next to it, with additional side tracks laid to accommodate 200 cars to be parked as sleepers when the trains arrived for the fight. By August 24th, $15,000 worth of tickets had been bought and paid for, money that Rickard used to finance the building of the stadium, pay for advertising and other costs, and fund the outrageous purses that Rickard was offering. Things were looking good until Nolan piped up with another issue, indicating that if Gans weighed over £133 with his gloves on, then he and Nelson would leave town and there would be no fight. Rickard finally lost his shit and said publicly, the two principals will find themselves hiking through the desert without funds. He even sent over a couple of heavies to have a word with the Malfi manager. On Saturday, two days before Monday's big Labour Day holiday and the day of the fight, visitors. Visitors flooded in by the thousands to Goldfield. As we mentioned in the Joe Gans career profile, Larry Sullivan, head of the Sullivan Trust Company, paid his forfeit fee and training expenses during his preparations in Goldfield. He advised Gans in a calm manner, if you lose, you'll never get our Goldfield alive. Yeah, Sullivan told Gans that my friends are going to bet a ton of money on you. They will kill you if you don't beat Nelson by a mile. The programme as well, which was full of more advertisements than the fighters, even had a photo of Gans receiving instructions from Sullivan, which carried that same caption. The lightweight championship of the world would be determined in a fight to the finish between two of the best, or the world's best, battling Nelson and Joe Gans. The magnitude of this fight was off the charts. The Miles brothers filmed the bout. Many celebrities and ex-fighters were ringside. Even the United States president, Teddy Roosevelt's son, Kermit, was in the audience. Rickard was the first ever to introduce current and or former champions to attend fights something that is still observed today. Larry Sullivan was the MC and the master of the ceremonies and he read out telegrams before the match. One is just, we, we haven't mentioned before, but it's the most famous telegram in sport, which came from Joe Gans's mother uh, in Baltimore. It said, Joe, the eyes of the world are on you. Everybody says you ought to win. Peter Jackson will tell me the news and you bring back the bacon. So by 3pm, the temperature rose to 100 degrees under the hot Nevada sun. Gans had won the coin toss and chose the corner with his back to the sun. The fight went 42 rounds. In a fight where Gans showed his class and power, dropping Nelson more than once and on two occasions actually even helped Nelson up. Nelson was also dropped out of the ring another time and Gans helped him to his feet and give him time to recover. Despite breaking his right hand in round 33, Nelson was still unable to take advantage of anything really, and in the end, on the verge of being stopped, Nelson was finally disqualified. Referee George Siler admitted later he could have disqualified Nelson at several points during the fight, but didn't because the crowd wanted to see a fight. The consensus among sports writers was that Nelson had deliberately fouled to avoid being knocked out by Gans. This would have been the ultimate insult to a racist like Nelson, 
who, in his autobiography, bragged of his coon graveyard. Nelson went to his grave denying he had fouled Gans, but he was so battered that several newspapers reported that he may die as a result of the beating he had taken. Nelson survived, and he would be back again. The great fight of the century had exceeded all expectation in terms of the action and especially the punishment that both fighters dished out in over three hours of fighting. One ringside spectator remarked afterwards, It was really too brutal to look at. Immediately after the successful fight, telegrams arrived in Goldfield requesting Rickard to make more fights, but none stood out. The rematch was off the table as far as Rickard was concerned. His point of view was that he didn't believe in rematches. Ganton Nelson would meet twice more with the old master now gravely suffering from tuberculosis. He lost both of those rematches and died in 1910, while Nelson lost the lightweight title that year and fought on until 1917. Now, the popularity of the event sparked a gold rush play that summer, the last of its kind in America, and it was said that before the second rush ended, the American public sank 150 million into worthless mining properties in that state. Within months of the fight, Goldfield was struggling to survive when disease, worker strikes and a consolidation of mines made for a bleak beginning to 1907. Excessive snows meant that stock prices plummeted. But if things couldn't get any worse for Rickard, his five-year-old Bessie became gravely ill from tonsillitis. Yeah, her high fever indicated by local doctors that her condition was critical and that she might have blood poisoning. In attempting to give her the best medical attention possible, Rickard took his young daughter to a New York throat specialist. The doctor felt that she needed an operation, but the girl could not survive the ordeal and actually died under the surgeon's knife on August the 5th. Rickard was in a state of shock. And when he realised that she was dead and that all the money in the world could not save her, I mean, he was just gutted, absolutely distraught. He never got over it and he never again trusted any doctor. He actually lashed out at the surgeon, but the only way he could retaliate, and that was by withholding money and not necessarily using his wrists. Rickard challenged the doctor's handling of his daughter's case and left New York with a large part of the surgeon's bill unpaid. When he returned to Goldfield, the mines faltered and Rickard, like everyone else who had invested in mine stock, lost a great deal of wealth. After the financial disaster, Rickard worked to recoup his losses, paid all of his debts and closed the Northern. Then in the fall of 1907, Mr and Mrs Rickard moved to Rawhide where he again partnered with Kid Hiley in the new Northern Saloon. But it was short-lived. In September of 1908, a fire destroyed the Northern along with much of the city. Rickard then gave the Northern name to a hotel in Eli, Nevada and took on management of a local copper stock and mining operation owned by millionaire Thomas F. Cole of Minnesota. The papers reported in 1909 and the famous gambler and promoter is once more on his feet. For a long time, Rick was in the ruck and bad luck hit him all sides. Then his luck returned. The report then went on to say, 
about 60 miles from Goldfield at a place called Pioneer City, rich ores were unearthed. Rickard went over there and secured a lease on the Pioneer Bonanza. He was shipping 100 tonnes a day of valuable ore at $100 per tonne, and that it would not take long for him to recover some of the big money he had lost and move on to his next adventure. In early August of 1909, James Jim Jefferies buckled under the public pressure and he agreed to fight the heavyweight champion Jack Johnson for an enormous purse. However, the real reason, as with all boxers, is was not because they wanted to settle any racial scores, it was because they both needed money. They then advertised that they would take bids for a promoter to stage the fight, and a day was set. Sealed bids were to be presented to the fighters with a certified cheque for $5,000 on December the 1st, 1909 in New York. Later in the year, Rickard went and met with his Minnesota friend and wealthy mine investor Thomas Cole about his mine business that Rickard was overseeing in Nevada. At the meeting, the subject of the impending Jeffries Johnson fight was discussed. Cole knew that Rickard had successfully conducted the Gans Nelson fight in 1906 and he asked him if he was going to bid on the promotion. Rickard explained that he wasn't in a financial position to compete against the other promoters and Cole replied, Go after that fight, Tex. If it's only money that you need, why you can count on me as much as you want. Outbid every promoter by $20,000 if necessary, but get the match. On the train back to Eli, Nevada, Rickard had second thoughts and decided to go after the fight, so wired Cole that he would take him up on his offer. Yeah, Rickard said, I knew I would have to act fast as the big Western promoters had already started east to sign Johnson. He had heard that Jeffries had already affiliated with a California promoter, which meant he had to go after Jack Johnson. He had read in a Chicago paper that Johnson was playing at a vaudeville engagement in a theatre in Pittsburgh. Instead of travelling directly to New York, Rickard stopped in Pittsburgh to see if he could persuade Mr Johnson into an agreement prior to the bid meeting. The stopover to Pittsburgh gave Rickard a feel of what it would take to win the bid. He located the boarding house where Johnson and his girlfriend, Belle Schreider, was staying during his engagement. Johnson was not at home, but Belle was willing to meet him. When Rickard asked her what she would most like from the impending deal, she responded, a seal skin coat. Tex told her, I'll buy you the best seal skin coat I can find if you'll get Jack to sign. Rickard left Pittsburgh and travelled on to New York. Before the bid time arrived, he met Johnson and Bell in a black and tan club in Harlem to talk business. Just as he had promised, Rickard presented her with a $1,000 seal coat. He would downplay the cost later by actually saying that the coat cost him a mere $75. The cost of the coat, at best, was somewhere near a grand. Rickard offered Johnson $2,500 to sign with him. But what Johnson actually wanted in addition to the money was to be guaranteed a fair and honest deal. Rickard was one man with that reputation as a straight shooter who could give Johnson this assurance. Rickard's handshake 
on this was as good as a signed contract. Through the grapevine, Rickard knew that the bids for the fight would be somewhere in the region of $75,000 to $100,000. Johnson then gave Rickard some inside information that promoters were going to bid as high as $100,000 to get the fight, an amount three times what had ever been offered for a purse. Johnson assured Rickard that a bid of $101,000 would give him the winning bid. On a side story, and according to a United Press agent, Johnson had been entertaining his friends at the Harlem Club, acting like a millionaire when he confided in Rickard, Look here, Mr Tex, I needs dough. The newspaper reporter tried to capture the dialect and insisted that Rickard pulled out his wad of bills and gave Johnson $2,500 without even batting an eye. Johnson supposedly said, I likes the way you doing things. We is playing ball together. On the day of the purse bids, a total of five offers were presented in New York. Ed Grady, president of the Tuxedo Club in San Francisco, handed in three bids. Partners James J. Kofroff, president of the Tijuana Jockey Club, and Jack Gleason of San Francisco also handed in three bids. In a strange twist, Jack Gleason was also partnered with Tex Ricard. When their envelope was opened, out came 15 $1,000 bills and a cheque for $5,000. The bid offered the fighters a $101,000 guarantee. Ricard could make up front guarantees because of his proven business expertise. One of his advantages throughout his fight promotion career was that, through his wealthy connections, he could pre-sell large numbers of tickets. His bid also included 70% of the film revenues with the following incentives. 20000 of the guarantee to be paid immediately. No promise, but fact the bills and a cheque were already on the table. And the other condition, $30,000 in 30 days, and the balance 48 days prior to the fight. You wonder where Don King got his trick there, I think, uh, Tex Rickard. Just delivering the money instantly. Huge Macintosh of Australia actually sent his bid by cable and he was represented in New York by P.T. King and he made two offers in three different countries. The highest bid came from Tom Carney representing the Pacific Club of Los Angeles who presented two offers as well. The first was 100% of the gate receipts and 50% of the movie profits. The second was $110,000 guarantee and 50% of the movie profits with the stipulation that the club had absolute management of the pictures. Because Jack Johnson was champion, he had the primary authority to make the decision of which bid to take. Although Rickards was not the highest, Johnson trusted him and accepted his bid. Jeffries' manager went along with Johnson's decision too. However, faced with so many different kinds of bids and possibilities, Johnson suggested that the fighters be given 24 hours to consider the offers. And then once they do that, they will make their decision. That night, Jim Jeffries and Jack Johnson were both at Madison Square Garden, but in different rooms, giving interesting exhibitions. The next day in the meeting, they excluded the media. Jack Johnson and Jeffries' manager selected Tex Rickard and Gleason's proposal. Kofroff would later say this of Rickard. The man is absolutely crazy. He'll go broke and skint a lot of others with him. 
the belt can't be possibly draw over $1,000. Before the fight, as early as January in 1910, Tex Rickard and Jim Jeffries sold their shares of the fight pictures for $190,000. Jeffries to receive two-thirds and Rickard one-third of the amount to a guy called W.T. Rock representing an Eastern Syndicate. The papers then reported that Jack Johnson had already sold his share to a Western Syndicate for $50,000. The ones left holding the fight pictures would lose money when the government outlawed the transporting of the films across state lines after Johnson won the bout. A law that stood for two decades was supposed to hurt just Johnson, but it backfired and it hurt many others, including Jack Dempsey, who estimated that he lost $2 million in income during the time he held the title and could have made money from films of his fights. The fight was originally scheduled to take place in San Francisco, but the governor of California decided he would not permit the fight to take place in his state on July 4th. In the end, Ricard transferred the fight to Reno, Nevada, but he estimated that he had already sold $70,000 of tickets for a California event. With less than a month to go, the location of the fight was changed. He refunded all of the money for the tickets and salvaged the building materials and shipped them to Reno. With the fight edging closer, Dr. Cornelius G. Coakley, the surgeon who had operated on Ricard's child in 1907, filed a lawsuit against the promoter for $2,200 in unpaid bills. To Ricard's objections, the court ruled that the money he owed the doctor be taken from the $20,000 being held in New York by the stakeholder. Considering the amount of money he was dealing with, a bill of just over two grand didn't really bother him. After dealing with the venue issue, next was a problem with the referee. When no agreement could be reached on who should be the man in the middle, Ricard assigned himself the task, which would be his first and last professional fight that he would ever referee. The excitement was growing for the fight. The Great White Hope, an undefeated heavyweight champion in Jim Jeffries against the undefeated current black champion in Jack Johnson, was printed in every newspaper and spoke about across the whole country and beyond. When author Rex Beach actually arrived in Reno, he wrote about the size of the fight. He said, We are obsessed by the magnitude of this coming clash. We see, we hear, we talk nothing else. Monday, 150,000 words went out from here over the wires and the fight was only was a week away. And every day it is the same. From now on until the time of battle, the daily number will increase. Even former boxers wrote up on this up-and-coming fight. You had John L. Sullivan represented the syndicate papers. Bob Fitzsimmons represented a New York Daily and Battling Nelson was writing for a Chicago paper. Beach explained, in other words, two novels are being written every 24 hours, dealing entirely on the question of individual superiority. When it is realised that of those 150,000 words, 100,000 at least are relayed through dozens of syndicates to countless newspaper offices in the United States, Canada and foreign countries and that those offices in turn print papers by the Myraid which are read 
on an average of two or three people to each copy, it is possible to grasp something of the enormity of the public's interest in the coming event. It was basically plastered everywhere. It means that every day more printed matter bearing on the Johnson Jeffries prize fight is written, printed, distributed and read. Then most book clubbers have in their entire libraries. Now, while many wrote of the fight and the fighters, it was actually Beach that wrote a piece on Tex Rickard. And we thought that'd be great to share it with you to give you a, a picture of what Tex was like, if you didn't already know. But well, more details on the man. Now, while countless reams of paper have been devoted to the actual contestants, no one has thought to describe Tex Rickard in a human way. Nevertheless, he is bigger than either of the other men and has never been the object of a certain admiration on my part. Beach continued and said, We first met 12 years ago in a little Yukon mining camp when the first snows of an Arctic winter were sweeping down upon us. He was a frank-faced youthful chap with a keen dark eye and a mouth ready to curl in friendly smiles or back again or tighten into ominous lines. His speech was quick and his tongue had the twist of a Texan cowboy. His hand was always open to grasp the hand of a friend, distressed, or to clench in defence of those he cared for. He made and lost some $50,000 in the upper country the year before, but he ate his ration of pork bosom and brown beans as cheerfully as the rest of us, who were likewise frowned upon by fortune. When spring came, we both went to chopping cordwood to pay the fiddler, in the course of a few weeks, he chewed out another fortune sufficient to take him to Nome and leave a bankable balance of $35, which token I concede him a better axeman than I. He landed on the shores of the Bering Sea 12 years ago next Monday with two ounces of dust in his kick. Three months and 20 days later, he sailed out with $40,000 in the pursuer's keeping. For the next five summers, he averaged close to $100,000 and grub-staked every broken sourdough who came to him for help. Then aspiring to a metropolitan existence, he journeyed forth to Seattle, where he lost it all. The man that could win a fortune with a turn of a card and then double it, only to lose it all again and never speak a word of his loss, was about to promote one of the most talked about and most memorable boxing events in the history of the sport. And if you haven't read the poem, If, I'd say it probably pretty much describes Tex Rickard at a minute. As was his motto, all five former heavyweight champions were on display in one ring, introduced by the booming voice of Billy Jordan, a celebrity boxing announcer. Uh, there were John L. Sullivan, Ruby Bob Fitzsimmons, Gentleman Jim Corbett, Marvin Hart and Tommy Burns. Many champions in other divisions were also introduced in the ring, Tex told the fighters, Now, fellas, I didn't want to referee this fight, but seeing as you can't agree on anyone else, I guess it will have to be me. Now, I don't know much about this refing job, except that I want you to give the crowd what they paid for, break clean and come out fighting at the bell. So into the fight and Johnson began throwing punches at a ferocious speed. As he did, even in the slow footage you do see, the only thing faster than his hands was his mouth, from which a stream of taunts poured 
as he nonchalantly bent Jeffrey's arms behind his back. Tex Rickard can be seen in his striped shirt and straw hat as he circles the fighters as an apparent radius of approximately five feet, apparently. Rickard took a hands-off approach and never stepped between the fighters until the end. Later, Tex told his wife that as he moved around the fighters, he saw the haggard lines in Jeffrey's face. There was a strange indecision in the man's movements. Above the rumble of the crowd, Tex heard a voice offering 10 to 6 on Jeffrey's, and he thought that that loud-voiced better was bound to lose some money. And lost money he did. At the end of the fourth round, Johnson scored with a looping right over the top of Jeffrey's guard. Jeffrey looked like a beating fighter right from that moment as he walked dejected back to his corner after the round. Round 13 was significant for the way that Johnson not only continued his taunting, but picked up the pace while taunting his victim. Throughout most of the fight, Jeffries did little more than fall into clinches, while Johnson masterfully spun his man and landed with left and right hooks into Jeffries' battered face, time and time again. At the end of round 13, Johnson measured Jeffries with a left and crashed home yet another overhand right. Ricard steadied his straw hat as he watched and walked back and forth, observing the fight. Johnson freed himself from another clinch and smashed a right hand and uppercut that had Jeffries out on his feet. Jeffries stumbled back into the ropes, whereupon Johnson landed three slapping left hooks that put Jeffries on the mat. As Jeffries struggled to get up, both Johnson and Tex Rickard watched with their hands on their hips. Rickard came in and grabbed Johnson's left shoulder as Jeffries struggled to his feet. But Johnson shook him off and smashed in a left hook that sent Jeffries sprawling through the ropes. Jeffries' cornerman poured into the ring, helping the fallen fighter to his feet, while Johnson had his right cocked. Jim Corbett, the former heavyweight champion, seemed to rush at Johnson, who turned as if to fight him off. Finally, with Jeffries in a bloody heap on the floor, Tex Rickard stopped the fight and raised Johnson's hand in victory. Jeffries had his nose broken and his eyes were shut. The white sports writers had claimed that the Anglo-Saxon race was superior on any field of battle. Johnson crushed that illusion forever and that was the real reason for the hatred directed against him. The man in the middle, Tex Rickard, apparently did a sound job and he had the best view in that sold-out arena. He did, and at the end of the fight, he gave his opinion. Jack Johnson is the most wonderful fighter that ever pulled on a glove. He won as he pleased from Jeffries and was never in danger. I could not help but feel sorry for the big white man as he fell beneath the champion's blows. It was the most pitiable sight I ever saw. As a matter of fact, I thought, way down in my height that Jeffries would be the winner of the fight. The fight was won and lost when Jeffries went through the ropes the first time. This is official. The other knockdown doesn't count. It was this way. Jeffries was brought to his knees and as he arose dazed, Johnson hit him with a succession of lefts that sent him through the ropes. As he that lay there, several of his seconds caught hold of him and helped him to his feet. Under the rules of the game, which I have read thoroughly, 
while certain people were saying that I couldn't referee a fight, this disqualified Jeffries and Johnson was the winner. I thought the seconds were going to carry Jeffries to his corner. Instead, they shoved him into the ring again to be beaten further while I was doing all I could during the confusion to stop the fight. Jeffries couldn't hit Johnson. Johnson could hit Jeffries whenever he pleased. Jeffries was not as good as the last time he fought. And according to the official statement given by Tex Ricard, 15,760 people with paid tickets attended the event and the gate brought in 270,755, a record for both attendance and gate. In addition to those who paid to see the fight, Ricard said there were 760 complimentary tickets given to the press and others. He estimated the numbers that slipped in at various places around the arena, breaking in tie holes in the boarding or climbing up the tie rim of the big structure at 1,500. The total attendance was given at 18,020. Ricard's profit exceeded $100,000 after he had paid all the bills and reimbursed Cole for his share of the money he loaned. By winning, Johnson netted the sum of $145,750, whereas Jeffries earned $101,916. Huge sums for 1910. When reporters asked Tex if he planned to stay in the fight promoting business, he answered, Well, I can't say what I'll do, but it will have to be some big proposition to interest me, and I have nothing in mind now. There is no man in the world fit to go against Johnson. Now, in the weeks following, riots broke out across America, pitting jubilant blacks against bitterly disappointed whites. A black man ordering coffee with scrambled eggs and ketchup told the waiter, I want my coffee as strong and black as Jack Johnson and my eggs as red and smashed up as Jim Jeffries. Rickard and his wife invited Jack Johnson to lunch one day and the moment he arrived, it was obvious that he was not in the best mood. He was accompanied by his trainer, and the two had been quarrelling. The trainer was excited to see the historic appearance of Haley's comet passing through the night sky, and had awakened Johnson to see the marvel. Johnson was still fuming at lunch the next day over his loss of sleep. Fussing, but obviously playing it up for his audience, Johnson said, I told you not to wake me up to see no comet. Who cares about comets? I want my sleep. There's going to be a hell of a lot of comets when I goes away, but there ain't going to be but one Johnson. Johnson then turned to Tex Rickard and said, How about that, Mr Rickard? Tex thought about it for a moment and then agreed with a straight face as he nudged Albert Fink, a friend from his former gnome days, who was dining with the group. That's right, Jack. There ain't going to be but one Johnson. So in January of 1912, Tex Rickard gave a long interview in the press, a rare one, while a reporter for Pennsylvania captured his statement. Then the interview was actually printed in its entirety, but we will just give you segments. And it's mainly about Jack Johnson. He said, there's a fortune waiting for the man who discovers the white conqueror of Jack Johnson. The moving pictures for the fight in which Johnson is defeated by a white heavyweight will alone be worth $600,000. Right now, Johnson and his title are safe. But for another year, or year and a half, the big Negro may find himself in the ring with his white master. 
For instance, he may find himself battling this young Al Pauser on the chin until the bones on his hands give way. I've looked over the crop of white hopes here and in Europe and have seen but one who seems to possess the markings of a champion. He's a big fellow called Pauser. He has the strength and the physique and the foundation from which champions are made. A year or so of careful nursing and instruction, Johnson will have his hands full beating him. Well, it was a little bit off the mark because I don't even know who Pauser was. And Pauser was a contender at the time of this interview and lost his chance at the White Heavyweight Championship on November 15, 1912, when he lost to a guy called Tony Ross. The only win Pauser had after that was against Fred Fulton, who is a guy we all know. His life came to a tragic end when his father actually shot and killed him during an argument in 1917. So he may and may not have been a champion. The reporter asked, Do you think Johnson ought to be allowed to fight in New York? And Rickard replied, Well, I don't know. The church people might oppose to it. But if I were in the promoting business here, I wouldn't hesitate a minute about offering $40,000 for a 10-round bout between Johnson and Jeanette or Johnson and Langford. The public would pay good prices for either bout. Rickard went on and said, Johnson is worth the $30,000, he asked, and Jeanette or Langford would be foolish if they wouldn't take $10,000. But after thinking it all over, I believe that Nevada is the only place in America for Johnson to fight. I don't even think California would stand for him. The conversation then switched to the Reno fight and the possibility of a fix, but Tex confirmed that there was nothing of the sort. He added that the pictures were a financial success, his last report from the picture people showing $253,000 earned. After the Reno fight, according to his last wife, Rickard was fed up with the racial politics surrounding heavyweight champion Jack Johnson. So Rickard decided to drop out of sight for three years and return to the cattle business. Only this time, that would be in South America. First, Argentina, and then Paraguay to be exact. He sold his copper mining interests in Eli, Nevada in 1910, and with the huge sum of $400,000 to invest, he went to Texas to buy a cattle ranch and be a cowboy again. But Texas couldn't offer him what he wanted, so South America was the next best thing. Ricard and his wife, Edith May, sailed to South America, and he told the reporters at the dock upon his leaving, I did not see anything in Cape Town. I think Argentina is the place. And at this point, Johnston, it's now time yes. to put an end to part one of the Tex Rickard story. Just when you think the story is said and done, it's promoted two of the biggest fights of that era. Well, there is a lot more story to come, guys, and we will be doing it for part two, and we will be continuing with everything else that Tex Rickard does in his promoting career and his life, of course, as well. But so far, what a fascinating story and what a fascinating wow. tale. Yeah, unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, just, just the Klondike stuff for me was amazing. I mean, what a thing to have achieved on its own. I think any person in their life you ever achieved that, it's just immense. And then to, to lose everything and to just win it back at gambling. I mean, he was, was, was a gambler and it paid off every time. He was never worried. I mean, the sad thing, he loses his wife, he loses his son, then he loses his daughter. Uh, you can't even imagine how that must have felt to get through that and then still knuckle down and 
be so successful with the Northern Saloon and just, I mean, it's it's quite remarkable, really, how he always just managed to find himself into them, into positions where he, of wealth and how he was so trusted. To be given the amount of money that he was given and gold, etc., you can't help but think there's obviously something quite warming about Tex Rickard, isn't it? There certainly is, and there will be more to this story in the second part of the Tex Rickard career profile. If you've enjoyed the first part, please let us know at career underscore profiles on Twitter. You can find us also at the BTR Boxing Podcast Network, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter pages, the TikTok page, the YouTube channel. If you're watching slash listening on YouTube, leave a comment below. Let us know what you think of this first part of the Tex Rickard story. The second part will follow this, so please do look out for that on the feed and, of course, across social media when it will get posted. But that is it for this first part of the Tex Rickard career profile. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll be back very shortly with part two. Sports Social Podcast Network.